Father, uh, we love you. As Clay said, you love us when we're unlovely. We lay down our selfishness, our sin, our covetousness, our distraction. Help us for just a while as we think about your word. In Christ's name, I ask, amen. Joseph easily instilled, instructed, and inflicted a worth ethic on uh, my oldest sister, Joanna, my middle brother, Stephen, and me uh, from as early memory as I have of my dad. Uh, he was part of the Depression era, and so work was integral in survival. You know, they had very little, but they could work. And um, early on, and I look at God's sovereign hand in our lives, this is perhaps the greatest gift my dad gave me, was to work and to have a work ethic. Um, they were incredible examples. My dad was a traveling salesman. He left Monday and came home Friday. My mother essentially raised three children by herself Monday through Friday. My mother was the most selfless, sacrificial person I've ever known. I saw her clean until her fingers were nubs. She would sweep the kitchen floor every night. She cleaned the kitchen counters every night. She would vacuum every day. She would go to the mass every day at the Catholic church we grew up in, and she would bring home the uh, vestiture, the purificators, the stuff that goes along with the mass. She'd bring them home and clean them and iron them and take them back. And there was no question her stood out above every other volunteer that did those duties. Uh, she would clean at the church on her hands and knees. Um, she never complained. And they were both very sacrificial people. When dad came home Friday night, I think part of their marriage agreement was, you take care of those boys while you're home because I'm done with them. So dad had projects every Saturday morning. And of course, teenagers like to sleep late. That didn't matter. You were, uh, you were awakened by your earlobe and you were going to go to work with dad. Uh, a lot of the jobs when, they, when I was younger were just, they were one word, hold the light boy. It was just one word, hold the light boy. And so I was out there at a very young age holding the light while dad was working on a car or, or you know, we always had older cars and we always had to work on them. Uh, that Mind uh, that time period, you didn't call a repairman or take something to the shop. You couldn't afford it. So dad figured it out. I can still see him at a kitchen table taking apart a $9 toaster to fix it. And I'm going, why are we spending this time taking a toaster apart? And I can still see him taking a little, I think they were called mica plates and soldering them together. And it worked for about three more times. But anyway, it was in him the idea of you, you wear it out. You never replace it. You just wear the thing out until you finally have to buy something used. We didn't buy new cars. We always bought used cars. Um, and my mother was such an incredible cleaner. When I played football, my, uh, my, my, the, the jersey pants were white. And, of course, you're playing on sod, so your knees, and, I mean, your, your mud and grass stain. I was the only kid in the team that had brand new pants every time I played which worked kind of two ways against me. The moms were like, how do you get his pants so clean? Everybody's like, that guy doesn't do anything. He just stands around. Um, they taught us to uh, get up early, to go in early, to offer to help, to pick up a broom, to take initiative, to stay a little late. And that was the mantra. Um, I can still see my mother ironing. The woman ironed everything. How many of you did your mother iron your father's boxers? She ironed his handkerchiefs. She ironed his clothes that he would pack 
and take with him on the trip. There was a time she ironed bed sheets. Anybody grow up where you're, parent, you know, bed sheets, you know. Um, I don't think most of you own an iron today, or if you do, it was a wedding gift you never used. Um, she ironed her life away. I would go home as an adult to visit, and um, maybe with, with Cindy might not have gone with me, or the kids, and I would just go see my mom, and I would put my clothes in a little pile in, in my boyhood bedroom on the floor in the closet, and sometime in the early wee hours, she would sneak in, take those clothes out, wash them, uh, dry them, and iron them, and put them back in my closet. As a grown man, I appreciated it. Um, <laughs> that was their job. She was sacrificial. She, her closet space was like this big. Very small house. Um, my first job uh, outside of you know, working for dad was uh, to shine shoes at a barber shop about a mile and a half from our home. And I would walk there, fifth grade, I think. And uh, 50 cents for a pair of shoes, 75 for boots, and maybe a tip. And the uh, proprietor of the barber shop let me uh, keep all of it. And he paid me $2 a day to sweep the hair under each client and to keep the uh, windows free of fingerprints. And I got to eat all the uh, uh, barbershop bubble gum my jaw could endure. And uh, I did that for a while. And then by age 15, I worked at a bus, as a busboy at a very high-end seafood restaurant because of some connections we had in the Catholic Church. And it was a night job. I couldn't drive, of course. And so my parents would be there at 12 and 1 picking me up without complaint, or my brother on occasion. Um, as we fast-forwarded, uh, about... 15 or 16, I applied at J.C. Penney's to be a stock boy because they paid more, but I had to lie about my age. So I lied about my age since I was 18, and they hired me. Um, fast forward into high school, I was bored with the program. I was in a public school system at that time, out of the parochial system, and uh, your parents can explain busing to you, but we went through this busing disastrous experiment, and because of that, the educational value just dropped down. I could show up and make an A in biology without reading a textbook, it was that bad. So I started this program where I got to go to work half a day. So I would uh, go like 7 a.m. classes to 11.30. I would drive to a photo lab where I worked from about noon to 5, 5.30. Then I would drive to a backpacking store that sold kayaks and backpack and mountaineering gear. And I would work till 10, 10.30 to close. And I did this for two and a half years of high school and loved every minute. On Saturdays, I would work 12 hours at the backpacking store. On occasion, the owner of the lab would call me and we'd do a project on Sunday for 10 hours. I loved to work. In school, it was, you know, this sort of thing. And so uh, for a year after uh, all that, I worked for the railroad, Southern Pacific, uh, the maintenance of way division. I'd taken some instruction in diesel mechanics through a thing for a few weeks, and I had a little certification thing, and I could work on, you know, a certain amount of deals. So I worked for the railroad. Great job, paid stupid money, but it was an interesting environment. And after a year, I'm going, do I want to be like all these mechanics? They're good people. But they lived for two things, the next raise and their four-week vacation. And it was, you know, it wasn't a dead end. This was what, what I wanted to do. Two friends of mine were at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. How many of you ever heard of Nacogdoches, Texas? Wow, I'm impressed. You know that John Wayne said Nacogdoches once in a movie? 
claim to fame. Um, but so uh, they were at Stephen F. And they said, you need to go to college, Michael. And I didn't want to go to college. Oh, you need to come. You can room with us. You need to come to college. Come to college. Come to college. Uh, this is before email. This is when you call after 11 p.m. This is real letters. I mean, none of this stuff we have today this instant. And so I applied and got in. I never went to the campus. I never applied to any college. I never looked at a course catalog. I drove to Nacogdoches with all my possessions in the back of a truck, kayak on top, all my tools in the back, all my clothes in the back, and I drove off to Stephen F. Austin. I wrote a check for my uh, tuition, and I didn't have enough money to buy all the textbooks that went along with the tuition. Didn't have a place to live, and I needed to find a job. So I go to all the GM dealers where I had a relationship because of my training. They weren't going to hire a kid who was a part-time college student. So I went to like, uh, you know, pet boys kind of places in those days that had a a service center. They weren't going to hire a part-time kid. So everywhere I went, no, 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 college town, ample supply of uh, part-time people, and you need to be a qualified person in my realm. There was a Ford dealer on the main street called Tipton Ford. I hated Ford's. I go into the Ford dealer, I knock on the door, I talk to the service manager, and I think he felt compassion on me. And he said, well, I can't put you on the line because you're part-time, but, I'll, but if you want to, I'll put you on the grease rack, which means changing oil and greasing cars, which we don't do anymore. Um, I was happy to have the job, minimum wage. This is 1976. So I go to work, in the, now, now the, the grease rack pit was a pit, literal, metaphorical. It was disgusting, it was greasy, diesel, gasoline, debris, for years. The concrete etched away, had a big hydraulic lift to put the cars and trucks up so you could service them. In those days you had to grease all the fittings and you had to top off the fluids. And it was, it was so depressing. The very back end of the shop, uh, you had to dispose of the stuff, blah, blah. So I go, I, I'm, just, I'm depressed out of my mind, but I gotta have a job. So I'm working there, and I decide I'm going to figure out how to change oil and grease a car as fast as possible. Now, if you know East Texas, the primary industry is uh, chickens. So a lot of these trucks were chicken trucks. I'll spare you the details of what fell on me when I had a truck on my head. But it was a metaphor of my spiritual life. Lord, what are you doing to me? I'm in a pit, and certain matter is falling on me. This just doesn't seem like a good equation. And um, so Joe Easley's in the back of my head. Get a broom, get there early, clean up. So within a very short order, I could change oil and grease a car or truck in no time flat. I mean, I had a system down that was as fast as any technology. So I'd go to work at noon, and uh, I'd have this list of orders of cars, and they parked them in a certain place. And I could... So then I'd pick up a broom, tidy up the area. I power washed my area as best I could. It was almost futile. And, you know, probably the reason I'm so sick today is all the chemicals I was around. Anyway, um, I'm power washing this stuff. There were tools thrown back there. I'm cleaning them up. I'm throwing them in the dumpster. People are looking. I'm trying to get this thing fixed. And then I got nothing to do. So I walk over to another bay and I offer to help a mechanic. I'll spare you all the details. But I'm leaning on a broom, literally metaphorically. And my manager comes over and says, why aren't you working? I got them all done. What do you mean? I said, I got all my orders done in my box. He didn't believe me. Off he goes, comes back 10 minutes later, goes, okay. Next few days, let's say I had 10 cars, now I had 15 cars, 18 cars, 20 cars. He tried to overwork me, basically, by taking all these appointments. Didn't bother me. I could still knock him out in a couple hours and be twiddling my thumbs. 
So I'd go help the front end bay. I'd go help the diesel mechanics when they had a, a big project. And that's a little dicey because they're flat rate. It's, anyway, all that to say, eventually I got on the line. Eventually I was put in a new car maker ready. I eventually worked my way to the diesel rack and worked on cars and trucks. And the only reason I got out of the pit was because Joe Easley was in the back of my head. So you get there early, you work hard, you help somebody out, you're willing to pick up a broom and do pick up trash, and you stay a little late if you're asked. Before long, I was driving the diesel wrecker truck. I was on call back when the phones were that big inside the diesel truck. I had a pager as a college kid. Now, I ain't that good. The work ethic is what made the difference. Um, my brother was the same way. Hardwired, he was smarter than me. He's an electrical engineer. And dad, in his wisdom, for all of his faults, dad could look at, he knew Steve was going to work with circuitry, and he could read schematics, and he could fix electronics. He knew I was a common sense person, needed to be outside. And it was our path in life. Steve became an electrical engineer. Um, so off to college. Uh, fast forward, I end up at seminary. Work all the way through college, work all the way through seminary. Uh, my parents helped us a little bit, and I'm grateful for that, but it's a little bit. And I worked full-time all through college. And I worked basically as much as I could in seminary, and Cindy worked full-time. We had one car, we had an 800-square-foot duplex, and we were not afraid of work. Why do I tell you all this? When we look at the book of Proverbs, it's instructed to me that Proverbs addresses the peril of laziness more than the virtue of work. The problem with being lazy is talked about more than the benefits of working hard. Step back, remember, wisdom literature is a corpus of information that's to teach the naive and simple primarily because the mocker and the fool won't listen, won't pay attention. So the idea is wisdom's calling. So it's self-evident that you wouldn't need to talk about how important work is. Rather, you need to talk to the sluggard the lazy person, the indolent person, the person unwilling to work. And that is really how the whole emphasis of the sluggard and work unfold in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to run you through about nine Proverbs pretty quickly, and then I want to take a little time on two and make some applications. Pretty straightforward. Chapter 6, verse 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes. Chapter 6, verse 9, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Not talking to teenagers, hang on. Chapter 10, verse 4, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is the son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is the son who acts shamefully. And then, Chapter 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Quick comment. Fat in the Old Testament is not a derogatory, you know, hateful term triggering people. Fat means you have a lot. You're abundant. You're blessed. You, you got a full belly at night because not everybody did. Chapter 15, 19, the way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. And again, we've talked about this again and again in Proverbs. The way, the path, 
the way of the wicked, the way of the adulteress, the way of the righteous, the path of the righteous. Wisdom is the righteous path, right? The wicked, the wickedness, the adulterous woman. So this path and way is sown throughout this. Interesting, um, when I read 1519 and spend a little time in it, I don't know if you've been, even if you're just a hiker, you go to Falls Creek Falls or whatever and you hike around. If you get off the trail, what happens? Before long, you're kind of in a mess. Before long, you got to kind of hack your way back to where the, I got to find the trail because you get out in the thicket, people who hunt. If you're a deer or turkey hunter, you can get in the thicket and it's more difficult to get back. Chapter 19, 15, laziness casts into a deep sleep and the idle man will suffer hunger. And then 24, 30, and then we'll spend some time on this one for just a second. I passed by the field of a sluggard and the vineyard of a man lacking sense. Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. It's a well-known proverb, but it, uh, for some reason this one's always been a favorite of mine. Um, how many of you like to go back and see the houses where you grew up? Cindy doesn't care for it too much, but I love it. I love going back and seeing. A few years ago, I had a speaking uh, event in Atlanta, and I told Cindy, I want to go down there and see my boyhood homes, which I had not seen, goodness, since 1964 or 5. So we drove to Atlanta, did the little gig, and then we spent the afternoon in Atlanta traffic, and we went to Chambly, where I grew up, and uh, looked at these houses. And, of course, two things. They look much smaller when you're an adult, right? We went to the Catholic school I went to, uh, Our Lady of Assumption. What a name. Our Lady of Assumption. And I had recognized nothing in the complex. Um, Cindy humored me. Uh, my dad planted 50 pine saplings. I mean twigs on this half acre property that he purchased in probably 1950, I'm going to guess, nine or maybe, 50, or maybe 60 at latest. And it was a new development area. It was a split level uh, house, sweet little house. And um, it was on a corner lot and it was just, I mean, it was terrible. The grass was terrible. And there was no lawns in those days. And so he planted 50 pine saplings. Between my brother and me mowing, we took care of about 39 of them. And then the others died. And so we're back, and this is probably just a couple years ago. So let's say, you know, 2000, you know, I don't know, 15, 17. Um, one was still alive. It was huge. It was huge. Um, I think I probably got it from him unknowingly, but every house we bought, I planted trees. And we went to the house we owned in Texas, and we had a tree. Uh, if you remember, you know what an Arizona ash tree is? It's a trash tree. It's like a cottonwood or a uh, uh, um, sumac. I mean, it's tree, you know, these trees are proof of the fall. I'm just telling you. They're proof of the fall. You can't burn them. You can't make furniture with them. They're just terrible trees. We had these ash trees in between the street and the curb and your sidewalk. They planted trees, right, like they do in every neighborhood. Well, these ash trees lined the neighborhood. This is a $72,000 home in 1984. And it's worth about $12,000, really. But it's a track home. It's terribly built. It's all we could afford. I was making $22,000 a year with no benefits. And Cindy was a stay-at-home mom with a new little baby. We had no cars. We, I mean, one car that, you know, that was a junker. We had, I mean, it was just what it was. We didn't know any different. 
Well, my dad taught me to take care of hedges and trees, so I trimmed that ash tree. We had one in our house in Houston. It was a disgusting tree. It drops stuff year-round. You have to do a tree line. You have to cut it up about six, eight feet so you can walk under it or it will die. And so I did that to this ash tree. We were back, I don't know, five years ago. The only ash tree on the block was the one in front of that house. And 313 Crossman Boulevard. And the sidewalk and the curb and the street are all busted up around it because the roots all go surface. It looks terrible. And no one ever took care of it since we left, but it had a tree line. It was the only one on the block. Why do I tell you these stories? Because Dad taught me to work. He taught me to take care of things. Um, when I see homes that we spent a lot of time and money on, others that we spent a lot of time and money on the yard, and a year later you would never know we spent all that time and money on that yard. A field of a sluggard and the vineyard of a man lacking sense. You ever drive around Middle Tennessee and you see a farm, and it's all grown over, and you can barely make out the farmhouse, and the roof's kind of half falling in, and, you know, it, it makes me sad, because I think of the husband and wife that probably built that home. It was a dream of theirs. And then they got sick, or one died, and one couldn't care for it, and the kids didn't care about it, and rather than sell it or whatever, they just left it alone. And it, it makes me sad, because of this proverb. A man lacking sense. Chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. Verse 9, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Let's talk about the warnings of laziness in this section. Sluggard is used 14 times in Proverbs. Only in Proverbs. Laziness is used 11 times only in Proverbs. That was new to me this week. I'm like, Whoa! The wisdom literature talks about a sluggard and poverty, and nowhere else in the Bible do we have this kind of information. Why? We're talking to the naive and the simple who need to understand something. You're talking to people who are willing to be taught, not the mocker, the know-it-all, the lazy, the fool. So it's even more striking to me. Um, sluggard is a complex term. It's not just your teenager who sleeps until noon or one or two. By the way, their brain is developing and they need a lot of sleep. So just let them sleep a little bit. Um, but the idea of a sluggard is a person who is undisciplined, a person who has a, a lack of initiative, and more technically a moral failure. Uh, this is not just lazy. This isn't a person who plays video games all day. This person is a fraud and deceptive. Um, the sluggard is a bane to society. Um, a French commentator uh, writes, as to the social aspect of the vice of laziness, a lazy person is a repugnant creature. It's, it's kind of common sense, right? Um, when I worked in that oil pit, I got minimum wage. 
And I'm struck today by what you blame it on whatever you want. You can blame it on so-called pandemic, blame it on COVID. You can blame it on supply chain. You can blame it on fill in the blank. But the fact that people would rather do nothing than work for a minimum wage is just unheard of to me. Because minimum wage is not the end result. Minimum wage is the beginning of a college kid who's a punk, a teenager, who needs to work part-time to pay his bills and wasn't too proud to work on chicken trucks and Ford trucks and other debris and hold a light and scrape a gasket and get there early and stay a little late and be happy to help. Learn from the ant. The creation and all it contains, God hardwired ants to do a thing. Ants, actually, if you have kids, they love, you know, my grandkids like certain things. They like, you know, monkeys or tigers, whatever it is. But they get fixated on something. All kids do this, the dinosaurs, whatever. They get fixated on it. It's a great teaching opportunity. The ant is a marvelous insect because it cleans up all the dead. And for all intents and purposes, it doesn't hurt anybody unless you get in its way. We grew up with fire ants and red ants in Houston. Fire ants are a problem. Fire ants can hurt you. They can hurt a kid. Um, but red ants are kind of slow and sluggish, and they're great to torment. <laughs> and as a teenager, and, and this is how we grew up. I mean, I, I'm a criminal. I lied about my age. I'm going to tell you some more crimes I did. I changed oil, and I would pour the oil on ant beds behind our house. That's what you did. That's what we all did. And you know what happens? In about 24, 38 hours, 34, 6 hours, the ant beds moved over about 4 feet. Now certainly they lost some friends. <laughs> they had an oil burial, but they started over. They worked all night. And as a kid, this was great entertainment. What can we do to try to get rid of those ants? If you've treated fire ants in your own home, I've got these chemicals you put out, four foot, you put hot water on them. You don't do it right? Four to six feet over here, they come back. Now, I don't want them biting my grandchildren or your children, but at the end of the day, they're doing a job that God intended. And Solomon is saying, you lazy, worthless, repugnant sluggard, go get on the ground with your elbows and watch ants. They don't have a boss, they don't have a time clock, and they work. And they know their job, and they stay in their lane. You might say, you got less brains than an ant if you don't understand this. The ant will have ample supply when needed, but the impoverished will be like a vagabond. Interesting word, like a desperate outlaw. Well, let's finish forward. Chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. It's a very obvious uh, contrast, the couplets, the chiasms we've talked about through the study. An unwillingness to work will lead to poverty, period. Diligence will make you rich. Sidebar on rich. Western thought Western meaning the U.S., our thought about riches and wealth is very different than the ancients. Uh, God blessed people in the Old Testament. He blessed Abraham. He blessed people who were faithful with a number of things. Land, 
animal husbandry. If you had goats, they reproduced. If you had whatever, cows, they reproduced. If you grew vineyards, was primarily one of the, the biggest crops that the ancients grew, uh, your crops would be bountiful. If you had kids, you'd have a lot of kids. And by the way, in antiquity, a lot of children was wealth. Because the more children you have, the more work you can do, the more land you can manage, the more ways you can expand your wealth. American wealth is generally a comparison to people that have more than us, nevertheless. American wealth is bigger, better, newer, more. American wealth, for the believer in Jesus Christ, needs to be parsed very carefully to say, God's blessed me. Always steward, never owner. Write it down. You're always a steward. You're never an owner. All that you have, God has allowed you to manage, to possess, to use. But you don't own it. The moment you're dead, you don't own it. It goes to someone else. And there's some common sense lessons in the Proverbs about how we give to our children. I could tell you stories for a long time about wealthy people that gave wealth to children that turned into disasters. And there are ways around that. And by the way, by the way, sidebar 2.0, you need to sit down with a state manager. I don't care how much money you have or don't have. You need somebody to sit down, look at what you got, and tell you what to do with it. Because you're not that smart. Oh, you might be that smart. You're not that diligent, and you're not that disciplined. Oh, I can do that myself. No, you can't. Sit down with somebody that eats, sleeps, and drinks management. How much do you need to live on? When do you draw your Social Security? How much do you give to your kids? Are you going to keep your house till you're dead? Are you going to move to assisted living? What are you going to do? Somebody who lives this will ask you the right questions. Well, I don't, I'm not wealthy, Michael. There are still estate managers out there who will sit with you for a small fee and help you plan your future. This was probably Cindy's and my most liberating experience. We started doing this. We started annually sitting down with people saying, what do we do? How do we do it? Updating the will. Things have changed. We need to do this, that. We need to do a lot of changes this coming year because we lost a whole lot of money the last two years. We got to adjust for that because when I'm gone, I want my wife to be cared for and not worry. Every woman, every wife in this room is terrified of what happens when you're gone. Men are too stupid to worry about it. Women are terrified. <laughs> what am I going to do if he dies before me? And that's your job. Husband, father, grandfather, that's your job. I'm not selling anybody. There are more planners than there are physicians in this town. Just look around the offices. Ask somebody that knows a friend who knows a friend. Okay, all that was for free. Let's come back to the Bible. 1 Samuel 2, verse 7, the Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. Proverbs 23, 4, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. I just give you these illustratively that wealth, because it's so commingled with, if you're not lazy and you work hard, you will be rich. Well, let's define what that means. If you're not lazy and you work hard, you spend less than you earn, you avoid debt, Always steward, never owner. You give to the Lord first. I will argue that till I'm dead. You give to the Lord first. Then you live on this amount, and over time, it works. The economies go up and down. Your amounts go up and down. It will work over time. And don't weary yourself with it. It shouldn't be your fear and phobia. 
If you're a good steward, it will work in God's great kindness. You'll be cared for. Chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, go back to for just a moment. It's such a beautiful comparison and contrast, just to show you super quickly. We have the negligent hand over against the hand of the diligent. This is a chiasm where we have AA prime, BB prime, CC prime. We've talked about these before. If you're new, I'm sorry, I don't have time to explain it, but it's, it's flipping points in the middle of the chiasm. It's called a chiasm because in Greek, a chiasm, a key is like an X. If you were in a fraternity, it was chi, chi omega, chiasm in Greek. And the point is in the middle. So you have AA prime or similar thoughts, BB prime, CC prime, DD prime, and they can get pretty complex. But in these couplets and triplets and proverbs, they're really fun to find and really easy to see. Negligent hand, hand of the diligent. Deceit is also a word for a loose bow in chapter 78 of of Psalms. Um, The couplet begins with poor and ends with rich. That's the framework. In chapter 5, you gather in summer or you sleep in harvest. So they're opposites, see? Um, It's a beautiful explanation. Um, The shame on the parents is interesting. And this disgrace, again, for antiquity was far more than we understand. For a son in antiquity to fail was a horrible reflection on the father. Eli's sons are a terrible epitaph. And for those of us who've had children who have broken our hearts and made bad decisions and maybe are still out wandering around, it breaks your heart. Oh, yeah, you can tell yourself, you know, they're a free agent. I did my best, but there's still that piercing that says, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? Why did my son or daughter go that direction? Because it breaks our hearts. Um, Wealth is achieved by diligence, but conversely, it's not a vice. The New Testament bears out similar teaching. Chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, verses 7 to 10. Paul writes, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. I love how many times Paul says, follow my example. That would be a great devotion for you. Get a concordance out and look at Pauline writing and just chase down the word example. It will blow your mind. Uh, I mean, how many of us would say, well, Just follow my example. Just do what I do and you'll be fine. Very pretentious, right? Very arrogant. Young people are going to say, forget you. Paul says, follow my example. Watch what he says, though. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Our example was we worked. Our example was I was disciplined. I didn't live, I was in a leech on somebody else's uh, dole. Verse 9, not because we do not have the right to this. The apostle could have said, you got to pay my fare. I'm an apostle of Christ. you got to pay my way. You need to, I, I have a ministry. You need to support it. Nope, he doesn't pull that card. In order to offer ourselves as a model, the word's type in Greek, a model for you, so that you would, here it is again, follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Think about the rancor you would get by saying that in our political system today. You know, work, you don't eat. 
Ah, oh, universal income. Ah, oh, I'm entitled to this. Ah, oh, the rich can pay for my life. Ah, oh, you're triggering me. I feel unsafe. <laughs> God help us. I can't fix all that, but I want to encourage you, don't back down. You don't have to go out and scream and yell like I do. You can just be faithful. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't let the world teach you theology. They're undisciplined. They don't want to work. I'm not going to work for minimum wage. I was talking to someone after the first service and said, I thought about working at a Waffle House just to clean. I thought, well, that'd be a lifelong project. <laughs> you never run out of jobs. I love to clean. I said, yeah, behind the Waffle House kitchen would probably solve that in about three days. But um, yeah. Well, he's an example, and he works night and day. We think he's a leather worker. We think that the Bible says twice in Acts 18 and 22, he was a tent maker. And we use that metaphorically when someone goes on the mission field and they're making tents, quote unquote. They're doing some other job or trade, stealth maybe, or to raise money maybe, or I mean, I guess ostensibly I went to seminary as a tent maker. Sydney and I worked as I went to grad school. Um, be that as it may, it was probably, uh, probably more goat leather and goat uh, hair, which was woven. If you've been to Sudan or, Vietnam, uh, or Nigeria, anywhere in African countries, they have goats far more than cattle. And you'll get these little rugs that are the, the type of, you know, the hide and the way they weave it. That's, he was probably an artisan more than a guy that made circus tents. Okay, when you think of a tent maker from town to town, it was probably more of an artisan, a craft, but we just don't know. But the point is, he worked. He wasn't entitled. He didn't come in there and say, I'm the apostle, and I'm planting churches based on Christ's commission, and you need to pay my way. And interestingly, he writes about churches taking care of their elders with double pay, because in those days, that was a full-time job. It's, Simply stated, if anyone is not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. This isn't something you bludgeon your children with, but it is a lesson for you. And I'm going to call me sexist. You know, I just don't have time anymore. I don't have time to try and worry about what everybody thinks. Fathers, it's your job to teach your children to work. Does that mean mom doesn't help? Of course not. Of course not. But there's something I'll never understand about a father's voice that says, you have to respect your mom. You need to do what your mother said. You don't have to be mad about it. You don't have to yell and scream. We all make mistakes. But dad, get off the bench and get in the game with your younger children and teach them to work. It can be fun. It can be joyful. When I was five or six and my name was Boy Hold the Light under the 66 Plymouth Belvedere we were fixing, and I can't see a blank thing if the light's in my eye. I heard that one a lot too. I can't see a blank thing if the light's in my eye. Hold the light, boy. When we finished the job, he always said, look what we did. And even as a kid, I'm like, I did something with my dad. Here I am, almost 66. I still remember the experiences. And probably most of you do too. Fathers have more power for good and influence in your children's life than you understand. And if you're letting your wife do it all by yourself, I don't care anymore. Shame on you. Shame on you. 
Help her. Help her. Respect each other. Okay, that's all for free. A lot of sayings my father said drove me nuts. But there are many I treasure, and this is one. The reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. I can't wait till Friday. I hate my job. I can't wait till Friday. I can go out and party with my friends. I can't wait till Friday. Boy, you're wishing your life away. I don't think he ever really knew my name. It's like, boy, boy, you're wishing your life away. And consequently, I worked my life away. And I had friends that had a lot of money and very wealthy parents and drove new cars. And, you know, I, I was happy for them. I never once coveted. Because I looked at how they lived versus how I was wired. Now, on an unspiritual level, the greatest gift Joe Easley gave to me was a work ethic. But it changes as we become believers in Jesus Christ. How much more you're working whatever you do as unto the Lord. And that should be more dignifying and give you more dignity than anything I said or tried to shame you with. You're working for him. He cares about what you and I do. Whether you're a teacher, a doctor in the medical profession, whether you own a company, you hire other people, whether you work at home in your own company on Zoom all day long, God help you. Whatever you do, do you open that computer in the morning and say, it's under the Lord. Every breath, it starts at a mechanic's pit sometime. Father, how much more we need to work as unto you. You've given us all gifting and wiring and propensities and talents and abilities Forgive us for comparing ourselves to others. Forgive us for complaining. Forgive us for covetousness or for wishing we had more. Help us to be content, to work hard, to be prosperous, to use our money well. But that the reward of work is the ability to work. Not just the end, not just the paycheck, not just the end of the week. Encourage us that we get to do things. We get to go to work, get in a car, drive to an office, help other people, serve, minister, build. Remind us that you gave us hands and abilities. And we look at an ant bed with no chief, no ruler, no officer telling them what to do. And they work. May we listen and learn. In Christ's name, amen.